Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Hey, as we start off today, I'm going to need a little audience participation. Okay, you guys feeling good? You feeling awake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was going to prepare for the sermon, but I had a really busy week, so I'm going to need you to help me with my introduction. Need a little audience participation. What is the most important thing that a person can do every single day? The most important thing. What do you guys got? Let me hear you. Let me hear you. What did you say? Someone said bathe. Thank you so much. Yes, you took a bath or shower, whichever one. Thank you so much. What? What else can we do every day? Water. Drink water, drink water, hydrate or dehydrate. That's what, that's what, okay. Somebody said pray. Listen, if prayer sounds like the Christian answer, that's because it is the Christian answer, okay? Okay, one more. Let me hear somebody else. What? Brush your teeth. Yes, thank you. We're greeting in the lobby. We really appreciate it that you would brush your teeth before you come to church. But listen, there's a lot of things that we do throughout the day. There's a lot of tasks, a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of different things for us to do. But there is one thing that is the most important thing that you can do every single day. Whether it's a good day, whether it's a bad day, whether it was just a day. You ever had one of those days? It was just a day, right? Whatever it is, if there's one thing that you can do, that's what we're going to be talking about today because that's the question that a person asks Jesus. What is the most important thing? If you have your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34, and we're going to look at Jesus's greatest commandment. If you grew up in church, you probably know where we're going. Love God and love people. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, as we continue our study through the book of Mark called The Simple Gospel. We'll read it all, make a few observations, and then I want to give you three things that we learn from this text. Verse 28, and one of the scribes, we're going to talk about that guy, came up to Jesus and he heard them disputing with one another. So there's an argument, there's a fight, there is a dispute between the religious leaders and Jesus in seeing that Jesus answered them well. He asked him, which of the commandments, that's the laws, are the most important of all. Jesus answered him, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength, and the second is like this, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the most important thing that you can do every single day is actually two things, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. And the scribe said to him, you are right, brilliant teacher. You have truly said that the Lord is one and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one neighbor as yourself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered him wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So this story takes place immediately following the last 
three different stories that we've read. If you're new to redemption, we are in the last week of Jesus's life. It's the 53rd sermon in our series through the book of Mark, and we're at the end of the life of Jesus. For three years, he's been preaching, teaching, revealing the kingdom of God, and now he has finally made his way to Jerusalem, the holy place in the temple where he is preaching. On Monday, he comes in, And what is known as the triumphant entry, Jesus, he steals a donkey and he rides it into town and everybody's waving palm branches, singing Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic declaration about the identity of Jesus. So there's a great crowd. There's thousands of people celebrating, cheering Jesus on, and this makes the religious leaders very angry. And so the next day, Jesus, he walks into the temple And he goes full Indiana Jones, flipping over tables, cracking the whip, driving out money changers, and he's not letting anyone get in and out. And then he casts a judgment against the religious leader saying that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you thieves have turned it into a den of robbers. And then Jesus leaves. The next morning he wakes up and he says, that was so much fun, let's do it again. And he goes right back into the temple on a Wednesday morning and he is preaching and people are listening and they're trying to figure out what it is that Jesus is going to say or do next. And then comes the religious leaders again. And it starts what is known as the temple controversies. It's five different arguments, fights, or disputes from the religious leaders to Jesus. And the first one is a group of men known as the Sanhedrin. These are the 70 ruling elders of Judaism at the day. It's kind of similar like our version of the Supreme Court. And they come to Jesus and they have a question about his authority. They say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to come in here, flip over our tables and start preaching in our temple? And then Jesus tells them a parable, essentially saying that he is the son of God. After that, they send in another group of religious leaders. This time it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the Pharisees, they're like the religious right. They're the ones with the red, make Jerusalem great again cap on. And then the Herodians, they're like the Antifa of the day. They're working in concert with the Roman government and they hate one another, but they're only united by their mutual hatred of Jesus. It's an example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so the the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they plot to be able to have Jesus crucified. What they're hoping to do is this. They're hoping that Jesus is gonna say something that is either heretical, maybe a false teaching, that he would disagree with Moses, and that he would lose favor with the people and the great crowds would leave him. And then the Herodians are hoping that he's gonna say something that's illegal, which is gonna cause Rome to come in, arrest him, kill him, because he's inciting a resurrection as a rebellion. So they ask him a question about taxes. Should we pay our taxes? And then Jesus says, you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's and you should give to God what is God. Question, what belongs to God? Everything in your life. Mic drop Jesus. And so they're out. And then the next week, what we see is another group of men known as the Sadducees. They come and they begin to argue with Jesus about the resurrection of the dead. Is there going to be a resurrection? Is there such thing as heaven or life after death? And then Jesus tells them he is not the God of the dead. No, no, no. You are planeo. You are on another planet. That's how wrong you are because he is the God of the living. And so Jesus, he is 
three and O, right? This is like a Royal Rumble. I want you to understand this. This is like, this is like a gauntlet. This is like the, the battle royale that Jesus, he's being attacked by all these religious leaders. First comes the Sanhedrin. He throws them over the top turnbuckle and then it comes the Pharisees and the Herodians and he throws them for an object, ladder and chair. Oh no, here comes the scribe. And now the scribe is gonna have a question for Jesus. He wants to know, out of all of the commandments, what is the most important commandment that a person can keep? Now, who is the scribe? The scribe is the theologian. The scribe, he is the seminary professor. He lives in an ivory tower in Jerusalem, and he probably is more educated than his intelligence. He has more degrees than Fahrenheit and enough letters after his name to spell the alphabet. That's who a scribe was, that he was probably the most significant, the most intelligent, the most revered, the most prominent leader in all of ancient Israel. And Luke's gospel actually gives us a little bit more information about the scribe. It says that he is an expert in the law. Now, when you hear law, don't think lawyer like we have in our day. He's not just following an ambulance trying to catch a case. No, he is a lawyer because he is an expert in the law. That he would have the entire Old Testament memorized and that he would actually write it out by hand every single day, and then he would use that to teach and to instruct upcoming rabbis. He was an expert in the law, he was a lawyer. And so in the Old Testament, there's this thing called laws that God gave his people laws for them to be able to live by in a way that they could honor and glorify and please him because when you please God, it goes well for you. So in the Old Testament, God gave Moses something known as the 10 Commandments. You ever heard of those? The 10 Commandments. And in there, there was the list of 10 things that God said, if you do these, it's gonna go well for you. If you don't do these, it's not gonna go well for you. And so they would live their life by the law and they would follow these. But For the religious leaders, over time, what happened was they realized that 10 wasn't nearly enough. They needed more than 10 if they wanted to be holy. And so they decided they were going to help God out, and they came up with an additional 613 laws. You wonder, how did they come up with 613 laws? Great question. Glad that you asked. You're always right where I'm at in my notes. How do y'all do that? That's incredible. So let me tell you how you come up with 613 laws, because the Ten Commandments had 613 letters. And they thought, well, there's 613 letters in the Ten Commandments, so we need to come up with a law for every single letter, and that's where we come up with the letter of the law. You learned something new today. Don't say I never taught you anything. And so they come up with 613 additional commands in order for you to live a life that is pleasing to God. But then... As more time went on, they realized 613 is still not enough. We need to come up with more laws. So through rabbinic tradition and what is called the tradition of the elders, they actually wrote commentaries over the law, which they would then go and enforce on other people for them to live a life. It's called the Mishnah. It was extra biblical teachings about how you live the law. And in the Mishnah, there would be thousands of different laws that every single day you had to live by. So let me give you some examples of how these laws went. So in the Ten Commandments, God said, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's one of the Ten Commandments. It's kind of a big deal. God said, when I created the world, I worked for six days. I took the seventh day off and I think I'm pretty smart. So I want you to do that too. 
because it's my gift to you. Take a day off of work. Hang out with your family, eat some good food, go to church, pray, take a nap, be like God. That's amazing. So take your Sabbath day. Guys, do you hear that? Six days, work six days. That's a full-time job, not a part-time job. Okay, work six days, and then you get to take another day off. Other than that, that's not a Sabbath. So God said, hey, keep the Sabbath day holy. So then the religious leaders come along with their clipboard, and they're like, hmm, God was not very specific about that Sabbath thing. He just told us to not work. So what does work mean? What does day off mean? What does rest mean? We're going to help God out. So they came up with a whole bunch of laws in the Mishnah on how you were to take a Sabbath. And some of these were ridiculous laws, okay? So let me just share with you a few. Here's how you would take a Sabbath then, that you weren't allowed to take a bath on the Sabbath day. Because if you were to spill water on the floor, then you're guilty of cleaning. Okay, I tried that at home. My wife does not agree. Okay, when I took a shower, she came out. She's like, why is there water over the floor? It's like, baby, I was cleaning the house. She's like, no, no, that's not how it works. Okay, it's like, hey, I'm just trying to go back to our roots, being Jewish in that sense. But no, it just it doesn't work. <laughs> Another one was that um, you, you actually couldn't, um, you couldn't make a bowl of cereal because that would be guilty of cooking. You couldn't walk 999 steps because that would be considered traveling. And you couldn't spit on the ground because that would be considered gardening. This is how ridiculous the Jewish people had come when it was about obeying the law. This is why he says, what is the greatest commandment? Because there's not only 10 commandments, not only 613 laws, but there's thousands of laws and there's no way that anyone can keep all of these laws all the time. So Jesus, could you boil it down to the greatest commandment? Now, how many of you are glad that living in America, we don't have ridiculous laws like this? Are you glad? Are you glad? I was too until I started prepping the sermon. And I want to know how many laws do we have in America? And so I looked it up and nobody knows. In 1980, Congress, they actually wanted to figure out how many federal laws were on the books. Four years later, they still hadn't come up with an answer. Okay, that just goes to show you how effective Congress is, amen? That's why they say it's an act of Congress. They still don't know how many laws there are. And some of the laws are just as ridiculous as the laws that the Jewish people made up. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you some of the craziest, ridiculous laws that I found this week while preparing this. And I do this because I don't want for us to fall into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, to where we can look back while we're reading the Bible and think, oh, those primitive ancient people, they were so silly and so foolish. I'm so glad that we're more highly evolved than they are, because the truth is we're just as ridiculous as the religious people as well. Here's some of the craziest laws that I found this week. Okay, y'all ready? This is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Okay, in Alaska, it's illegal to push a moose out of an airplane. How do you even get a moose in an airplane? I don't know, but you can't get a moose out of an airplane by pushing it out. In illegal, it's illegal. How about this one? In Wyoming, it's illegal to take a picture of a rabbit from January to April. Okay, December, you can take a picture of a rabbit. May, you can take a picture of a rabbit. But January through April, no pictures of rabbits. That is illegal. How about this one? In Arkansas, you can't honk the horn while you're hungry. How many of y'all going to jail? <laughs> You're like, you're like on the, in the drive-thru through Chick-fil-A, honk, honk, I need my chicken sandwich. Whoop, whoop, here comes the cop. Nope, you're going to jail. You're going to jail. Instead of chicken sandwich, you're getting three hots and a cop, baby. <laughs> in Connecticut, it is illegal to sell pickles that don't bounce. I wonder who came up with this law. They're like, drop it on the floor, like, hey, my pickle didn't bounce. 
hey, we need to do something about all these counterfeit pickles. This is ridiculous. I need my pickles to bounce, right? <laughs> I was waiting all week to say that. <laughs> in Alabama, it's illegal to wrestle a bear. Why not? Um, in California, uh, it, is, it is illegal to go to church, but you can still go to a strip club, just saying. And in Jefferson County, Texas, right here in the good old Southeast Texas, it is illegal to fart in an elevator. How many of you like that law? You like that law? I, I'm voting for that law, okay? But I just go to tell you that there are some crazy laws that we have and that we've made up and we've come up and then we try to enforce these laws on others. I actually read this week that the average American commits three felonies every single day without even knowing it. That's how many laws we have. I'm just imagining my sweet Nana, who's on our prayer team. She's leaving from church after praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit for one of y'all. And she's driving home, and all of a sudden, mm, you're going to jail. She has prison ministry from the inside because there's so many, there's so many laws on the books. But this is really important for us because I want you to begin to put yourself in the position of a first century Jewish leader that there would be so many laws that you can't even keep up with all of the laws. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what is the most important one? I can't keep these. I can't keep the 613. We haven't even done a good job keeping the 10 that you gave us. So could we find a little loophole? Could we find a little easy way out? I mean, could we just do one thing? Is one thing enough? And if one thing was the most important thing, then what is the most important thing that a person can do every single day? To which Jesus responds by, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The end. You guys are dismissed, you guys can go. Just love God, love people, sermon's over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Everyone who's new is like, wow, cool, we're gonna beat the Baptist to Chili's. <laughs> And everybody who's been coming to redemption for a while, you know we never beat the Baptist to Chili's. <laughs> we never make it. That was just his introduction. Calm down. See, in church, we say this stuff all the time. We say, love God, love people. What does it mean to be a Christian? Love God, love people. We even have kind of sayings like this. A great commitment to the great commandment makes you a great Christian or makes us into a great church. What does God require out of us? Love God, love people. That's all it is. Just love God, love people. You probably heard this in church. Or if you're not... A part of a church, you're familiar in church, you probably heard it in culture, maybe on a, on a Twitter argument where maybe a pastor says something that's a little offensive and maybe he's calling into question some of the confusion that's happening in our society and all the things, and then people will jump on there and say, that's not very loving for you to say. I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. You're supposed to be loving. That's not very loving. You're supposed to be accepting and tolerant of everybody who disagrees. You're supposed to be very loving. And then there's this big argument about, are you loving people? Oh, we're trying to love people. No, you're not loving people. Hey, just love God, love people and call it a day. But might I suggest to you this, that our interpretation of this text and application doesn't really get to the heart of the matter of what Jesus is saying. That Jesus is actually saying something more significant and way more important than just going, hey, love God, love people. It's gonna be okay. 
that this isn't just a pithy statement from Zen Ziggler Jesus. He's wearing a dress, sitting under a tree, drinking herbal decaf. Like, that's not what he's saying. Just love God, love people. Put it on a bumper sticker, hashtag on your Instagram. Put it on your bio. Love God, love people. Because what Jesus is actually saying here is quite dangerous. It was dangerous for the religious leaders. And if we understand it, we'll recognize that it's actually it's actually really convicting for us because the religious leaders, they were angry that Jesus said this because look, here's how the story ends. Listen, here's the last verse. It says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but then look down at verse 34. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. The religious leaders are like, we're done talking to Jesus We don't want anything else to say to Jesus. And so we're going to go from here and we're going to begin to plot his execution. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. Immediately following this conversation, we see another message in Mark 13 about the end of times. And then you see the religious leaders plotting along with Judas a false accusation, fake trial, and illegal arrest and leading to his death. Because what Jesus said here was dangerous. What Jesus said here was indicative of their hard hearts towards him. So what was it that Jesus said that offended the religious leaders so much? Was it because Jesus was preaching about love? No, that's not the reason why. Was it because he said, your heart, mind, soul, and strength? No, because they understood that. It's because he said, neighbor? No, we're gonna talk about that in more detail. So what was it that Jesus said that the religious leaders became so angry at? And what's the word that we normally miss when we're studying this? It's this one three-letter word right here, all. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord, your God, with all. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what that word all means? All. (laughs) It doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean most. It doesn't mean almost. It means all. Do you know what it means in the Hebrew? I did a big word study this week. It means all. (laughs) I even tried to figure out what it meant in the Greek. It means It means all. It doesn't mean some of you. It means all of you, 100% of your life. From the day that you were born to the day that you die, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep at night, every inch, every ounce, every fiber of your being, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, hopelessly, totally sold out to, devoted to God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul and with your strength. That's what God expects and that's God's standard because there is no loophole to get you out of all. And the religious leaders realize there is no amount of work, there is no amount of trying or striving or good deeds or law-abiding loopholes that we can find to get us out of this three-letter word of all. Because to give God less than all is to fall short of the standard that God has for us. Listen, write this down if you're taking notes. God's wholehearted love requires more than our half-hearted response. 
See, the religious leader, he's offering God a half-hearted response. What can I do to get out of following the law? How can I justify or excuse myself? What is the most important thing? Because I can't do all of these things. And then Jesus says, give the Lord your God all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And anything less than a wholehearted love that God has for us and our half-hearted response to him is less than what God actually requires of us. How much has God loved us? With all. God has loved us with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That God has given us all of himself. He doesn't give us a part of himself. He doesn't give us some of himself. He doesn't give him most of himself. No, he gives us all of himself. This is what is known as the covenantal loving kindness of God. That when God loves you, he loves you. When God saves you, he saves you. When God forgives you, he forgives you. When God is there for you, he is there for you. 24-7, 365, he's watching over you from the moment you were born to the moment that you die from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment that you go to bed at night he is with you always giving you his all a wholehearted love and God's wholehearted love for us requires more than a half-hearted response to him and if we're honest with ourselves we're more like the scribe who's trying to justify and find a little legal loophole to figure out does all really mean all Because if we're honest with ourselves, so many of us give so little to the one who gave us so much. That we don't love God with all, maybe some, maybe most, maybe almost on a good day, we're almost there. But as you see, almost is not the same as giving God your all. How many of y'all are feeling a little convicted right now about that? Okay, good, good. Again, that was just my introduction. I want to give you three things that we're going to see through this text. And I want to do this to be able to help you understand it. Because while, yes, this is the most important thing, it's also kind of impossible. But just because it's impossible doesn't mean that it's not important. And so what I want to do is I want to just give you three observations to this text to be able to help you better understand what it really means to love God and love others. So we're going to look first at the greatest commandment. If you're taking notes, your outline's right there. There's three things. We're going to see the greatest commandment. We're going to see the greatest sin. And then we're going to see the great exchange. So we're going to see the the greatest commandment. Here it is. The most important thing is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Here, Jesus is quoting from two different places. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. What Jesus is quoting here is what the Hebrew people would have known as the great Shema. Okay, this is a prayer that every Jewish person would have prayed twice a day. They pray it when they wake up in the morning, and then they would pray it also before they go to bed at night. It was very similar to what is our our Lord's Prayer, that we pray the Lord's Prayer, we teach it to our kiddos, we instruct them when it comes to prayer, and they would use the same thing when it comes to the Shema. So they understand how significant this prayer is, and it starts off with this word right here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, when you see that word here, it doesn't just mean hear. It means to listen and to obey. How many of you are parents? You parents, you understand this, right? Right? It's not just hear, like, hey, did you hear me? They're like, yeah, I heard you, but you're not doing what I said to you, so then you didn't hear me. All the husbands, you've also heard this before, but you still haven't understood it yet. When your wife says, hey, are you listening to me? You're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. But if you didn't take out the trash, you're not listening, amen? And so here, 
also implies an obedience that comes along with it. Here, Israel, our Lord, our God is one. And that reference to one is not a reference to the Trinity. Okay, we believe in the Trinity. We hold to that. A lot of people would say, maybe from a United Pentecostal background, see, oh, look, it says here, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one. And so that must mean that there is one God and the Trinity doesn't exist. That's actually not what that is getting at. What it's really getting at is that he is the priority of our lives, that he is one. There is no one like him. There is no one beside him, that no one compares to him, that he is numero uno, number one. The Lord our God is one. And compared to him, everything comes into a very distant, distant distant second in our life, that he has to be the priority in our life, that nothing is to ever take the place of God, because that's what it means to love God, that God is sovereign, that God is supreme, that God has authority, and God takes the top position in our lives, because the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and if you're not being obedient to that, then you're not listening to him. Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what does this supreme God require? What does he want? What is God after? Love. That our God, he wants love. And this is so incredibly important because for many of us, we think that love is just an affection. In, in our culture today, we think that love is an emotion or that love is a, a feeling. And so we say things like this, I don't feel loved or I need to be loved or I love you or I don't love you anymore. I've fallen in love. Oh, I've fallen out of love. But the truth is, is as the Bible teaches, we don't fall in love. We walk in love which means that love is not just a feeling. Love is more than a feeling. Love is also a choice. That love is also a command. You can't just command feelings. No, but you have, to, you have to see that this is more than a feeling because God is able to command it from us. It is a decision. It is a devotion. It is a choice that we make to be loving, loving to God. See, we understand this in other aspects of our lives. We understand it when it comes to marriage. Okay, in marriage, there's sometimes I'm sure that Ashley doesn't feel very loving to me. Okay, but she wakes up every morning for the last 12 years and she's made that choice. Today, I am gonna love Byron. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Ashley. That every single day you've made that decision. Listen, I'm gonna be honest with you. As a dad, okay, my daughter's birthday is today. She's four years old today. As a dad, in those four years, I've learned how selfish I really am. Because there's some days... I don't really feel like loving my daughter. Just be honest with you. I mean, I'm just being honest. Every parent here, you don't have to raise your hand or say amen because I do pastoral counseling with you. I know. <laughs> that there are days where you don't, you don't feel like it, but you still choose to do it. Yesterday, we took our daughters for a walk. She wanted to go see Jesus. And so we took her to the Methodist church by our house and we taught her how to ride her pink scooter and she saw Jesus' statue being baptized and she was trying to play in the water and throw rocks in there. And I'm thinking, you know what? I could be at home doing something else right now. And initially, when she said, Daddy, can we go for a walk? My first response was like, no, I kind of want to take a nap. But I took her for that walk because I made a choice and a decision that I was going to love my daughter in that moment. We understand this in life. And this is the same thing that God is getting at for us, is that love, write this down, love is more about obedience than it is about our convenience. 
Love is more about being obedient to God than it is about our convenience in life because sometimes it's gonna be inconvenient for you to put God first in your life. Sometimes it's gonna be a little inconvenient for you to rearrange the priorities in your life so that way you can love God because sometimes it's just not the most convenient thing and so you wanna just give him a little bit, you wanna just go just a little bit, not all, but almost, but listen, partial obedience is still disobedience. Doesn't matter if it's inconvenient for you. Loving God is more about obedience than it is about convenience. And here's what our God wants He wants us to make Him priority in our lives. And what do we get when we do that? We receive God's love Himself too. See, I want you to understand in our day, we have this allergy to obedience. We're like, obey? No, nobody can tell me what to do. I am a libertarian. No, and we have this understanding that, 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 that obedience is a negative word. Obedience is a bad thing, but obedience is a beautiful thing because it's obedience that brings God's blessings into our life. Right, right before the Shema, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5.23. It actually says this. It says, you shall walk in the way of the Lord that God has commanded you that you may live. Why does God give us commands? That you may live, that you may live, that it may go well for you, and that you may live life, a long life, in the land that you should possess. God's blessings follow our obedience. How many of y'all want to be blessed by God? Then obey him. How many of you want the favor of God on your life? Then obey him. How many of you want to see God do incredible and amazing, wonderful things in your life? All you got to do is obey him. Because whenever you obey God, then you receive the blessings of God in your life. And what does God command us to do? To love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And then another way that we can love God is by loving our neighbors as ourselves. Right? When we love God the most, we're able to love others the best. And so here's what I want to do. I want to just kind of walk through these five ways that we can love God. Jesus says these are the most important things. And so let's just take a list. Let's just take a look and see how we're doing when it comes to loving God. The first thing he says is to love God with all of your heart. That word heart there is habab in the Hebrew. Okay, any of y'all ever had a habab? There's a great one at Elena's on Dallin. I love, no, that's kebab. Habab means heart. And it's the seat, the sum, the center of all of the human experience. It is where we get our identity from. What he's saying is this, that you need to love God from the innermost part of who you are, that your identity would come from him. So what are some ways that we can love God with all of our heart? I brought our whole staff in this week, and we came up with different ways to hopefully be able to encourage you with different things that we could do to love God with all of our heart. We talked about Bible reading. We talked about devotions in the mornings. We're looking at spiritual disciplines through our lives. This is things like regular church attendance, not once a month or once every presidential election or when something goes bad in your life, then you go to church. No, this is regular, habitual, committed church attendance, becoming a member of a church, being involved in a small group, surrounding yourself with people who are going to encourage you because the one who walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools actually suffers harm. This is speaking of things like tithing, giving 10% to the Lord, trusting God when it comes to your finances. This is meditation, Sabbath rest. All of these are different ways that you can fill your heart daily with the love of God. And how often are we supposed to love God? With all of our heart, every moment, every day. 
seven days a week. To love God with all of your heart. The second one he says is to love God with all of your soul. That word soul is where we get our desires from. It's where we get our passions from. It's what fuels us to make it through the week. It's what fires us up in the morning, inspires us to continue to live life. And God says, I want to be the passion of your soul. How do we love God with our souls? These are things that actually give us life. So this could be your job, work, or vocation. That's a great way for you to love God with your soul is to love what you do for your living in life. It could be raising your kids. Investing in kids is a way that you give to God glory in what is his by loving with his soul. If you're married, it's investing in your marriage. If it's single, it's being invested in your singleness, making the most out of your life in the moment that you are, in the season and circumstance that you're in. These are ways that we can love God with our soul. It includes going for a walk, slowing down, stopping, and smelling the roses along the way, enjoying beauty that is around you, understanding the stage and season of life that you're in. All of those are ways that you can love God with your soul. The second one is to love God with your mind. This is one thing that I have a problem with a lot of evangelicalism today is because people don't love God with their minds. There's an anti-intellectualism that is in the church today to where people think, oh, I just give God my heart and I don't care about what I do and all that book learning, that's not for me. I'll let my pastor read the books. I'm just gonna watch the YouTube video. Okay, that's actually not what God requires out of us. God gave you a brain for a reason. He wants you to use it. This is why it talks about having the mind of Christ being renewed in our minds. God wants you to grow in your knowledge of him because your love for God is contingent upon your knowledge of him. And the more you know him, the more you're gonna love him. And so read good books, listen to podcasts on your way to work, fill your head with sound doctrine, get into a debate with somebody who believes something different than you, and I guarantee that you're gonna both grow in your understanding of God and your love for him. Use your mind because your brain is a way that you can glorify and love God. And then he says this, to love God with all of your body, with all of your might, with all of your strength. See, there's this thinking today also in the church that we are a dichotomy or a trichotomy of people, that God cares about our heart, God cares about our soul, but he doesn't really care about our mind and our body. No, the truth is we are holistic people and every single part of you makes up who you are. And so God cares about your heart, but he also cares about your body. And what you do with your body is a way that you love God. And so this includes diets, eating healthy foods because your body is a temple. And as you take care of your body, you're giving your love back to God because you're being a steward of the blessings and resources that God gave you. And God only gave you one body, so you better be taking care of it. This includes drinking plenty of water throughout the day, getting good sleep, taking rest in your life. This includes, if you're, if you're single, abstaining from sex until marriage. And if you are married, enjoying as much sex as you can because that is glorifying, honoring God with your body. God cares about what you do with your body and what you do with your body is another way that you can love God. So here's the question. When it comes to loving God, how are you doing? Are you doing these things? Are you applying these things to your life? Are you following these things? Are you doing them? Maybe one or two, maybe five, maybe 10, but every day? Are you loving God every day? Are you loving God with all of your heart or some of it? Are you loving God with all of your soul? Just a little bit of it. Are you loving God with all of your mind? Or are you loving God with all of your body? because anything less than all is less than what God wants.
Do you see why the religious leader's a little offended right now? Because he thought he was a good person and doing a great job. And then he realized that all means all. And anything less than your all is less than what God expects. He was given a half-hearted devotion to a God who requires a wholehearted affection towards him. We haven't even got to loving our neighbors yet. <laughs> Most of us don't even know our neighbors. Most of us, if we live in the suburbs, here's what we do. We have this thing called a garage. <laughs> and they specifically built those so you can't love your neighbors. <laughs> so you just ride in from work, slide your car in, push that button, go inside. You don't even know your neighbor's name. <laughs> Right? Are we loving our neighbors? I don't know. Let's go ahead and read and let's see how we're doing. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Luke's gospel actually gives us a little bit more detail about this story. And it says that the scribe seeking to justify himself. Here's what it says in Luke uh, 10, 29. But he wanted to justify himself. He's like, ah, I'm not really that bad. Compared to other people, I'm doing pretty good. Listen, I'm successful, I'm prominent, I'm rich. Everybody knows my name. I got a good education. I tuck my shirt in and go to work every single morning. Like, obviously, I'm a pretty good person. And so you're making me kind of feel a little bit guilty. So let me go ahead and try to justify myself because that's what lawyers do. And they justify themselves. And he asks this question, who is my neighbor? How many of y'all ever heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? That's where this story comes in. Luke tells us that Jesus responds by the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't have enough time to get into it today. You can go home and you can read it. But basically the story is this, that there is a man who is beaten and left on the side of the road. The religious leaders walk right past him, the, 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 the priest and the Levite. And then a Samaritan comes along, picks him up, bandages him, puts some oil on him, pays his rent at a hotel, gets him all of the medical treatment that he needs, comes back and gives him a little bit more money. And Jesus asked the scribe, who was the neighbor in that story? And the man responded by saying, the one who had mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan because they hated the Samaritans so much. The Samaritans were less than people. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. The only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan to them. Okay, this is basically like if Jesus were to tell a story to us and the hero would be somebody from ISIS. That's how shocking and dangerous Jesus' teaching on loving others actually was. This would be very similar to the early Jim Crow laws in America, the three-fifth compromise. They didn't even consider Samaritans to be full people. He can't even say the word Samaritan, but he does recognize that the one who shows mercy is the one who is being a neighbor. So the question is, who is my neighbor? The question is, the answer is everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. What about the people that I don't like? Still your neighbor. What about the people who disagree with me on Facebook? They're still your neighbor. What if they hurt me? They're still your neighbor. What if they, what if they didn't vote like I voted? They're still your neighbor. What if, what if, they're, what if they're my in-laws? They're still your neighbor. What if they're my outlaws? They're still your neighbor. See, here's what we got to understand, is that if all means all, when it comes to loving God, then all means all when it comes to loving others. That you can not put limits on who you're supposed to love. But that's what so many of us do. We wanna put limits on who we love. If you look at your life and the people who surround you, let's just be honest, most of them look like you. 
Most of them act like you, believe like you. They're in the same social circles as you. They work at the same job as you. Maybe go to the same church that you go to. You grew up and went to the same school. Y'all's kids play at the same playground together. And you surround yourself with people who look just like you, act like you. And it's really easy to love people who look like you. Isn't it? You're like, wow, you're so amazing. You remind me of me. Let's be friends. But the truth is, Jesus says, the way that you love you is the same way you're supposed to love everyone. And more specifically, the poor, the immigrant, the one who is in need, the one who can do nothing for you is the person that you are supposed to love. Here's actually what Leviticus 19 says. It actually says this. It says, thou shalt not take vengeance or bear grudge against one of your own people. Elsewhere in the book of 1 John, it says, if anyone says that he loves God and hates his brother, that man is a liar. Because you can't love God and hate people. And you can't hate people and love God because you cannot put limits on who you are supposed to love. I remember when I was teaching high school and I was at this Christian school and I was going through First John and one of the girls raised her hand and she says, what if I just really don't like them? Does that count? I don't hate them. I just pick on them all the time and ignore them and call them ugly. But I don't hate them. I'm like, ah, that kind of doesn't seem like it fits here. Right? If, if you're not loving people, then you're not loving them. And you can't put limits on who you're supposed to love. He says, oh, and he says, do not take vengeance against, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Everyone. You say, but, but, I, I don't, but what, if, what if everyone? I got one more. What if, what if everyone? Okay, what if they're not Christians? Yes, you're supposed to love them. What if they're Republicans? Yes, you're supposed to love them. What if they're Democrats? Yes, you're supposed to love them. And to all the libertarians I offended, I'm sorry, I love you. You're still supposed to love them. What if they're gay? You're supposed to love them. What if they're Cowboys fans? You're still supposed to love them. <laughs> Listen, our society has bought into two big lies. The first lie is this. The first lie is that in order to love someone, you have to agree with everything in their life. And the second lie is if you don't agree with them, then you're not loving to them. Both are nonsense because you can be compassionate without compromising on your convictions. You don't have to agree with everything they do, affirm them and throw a parade for them, but you still have to love them. You still have to see them as image bearers of God, made in his likeness and image, worthy of dignity and value and respect, no matter how rich or poor, successful they are, you're still supposed to love them, no matter what they've done, no matter what they do, no matter what they said about you, the answer is still that we are supposed to love them. You cannot put limits on who you're supposed to love. So are you loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? How many of you kind of start to feel like the scribe right now? You're like, yeah, I'm just gonna walk away here, Jesus. Because he was looking for a loophole to justify and excuse himself so he could feel like a good person. And when you wanna live by the law, here's what happens. If you live by the law, you will be leveled by the law. And the failure to keep the great commandments leads to point number two, which is to commit the greatest of sins. If it's the greatest commandment, then wouldn't it make sense that this would also be the greatest of sins? 
See, people think rape is the greatest sin. It is a horrific sin. People think that racism is the greatest sin of the day. It is a horrific sin. People think murder, lying, cheating, stealing, being a Cowboys fan are the worst sins you could do. But that's not the case. The worst sin, the greatest sin, is to not love God and not love others. To not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to not love others as yourself. If it is the greatest commandment, then to break it means that you are guilty of committing the greatest of sins. Listen, here, here, here's what Jesus is, is, is getting at in this, in this case. Is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know what God's ultimate plan for creation was? That we would love him and love one another. The greatest commandment extends all the way back to Genesis chapter one. God made the whole world, said it is good. And then he made man and said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so I'm gonna make a helper fit for him. He makes Eve and he says, ah, very good. Because God created us to be in relationship with him and to be in relationship with one another, to love him and to love one another. That was God's original intention for our lives. But what happened? If you look around and turn on the news, what do you see? Not very loving, not very kind. It's not a very gracious place. We are a long way from the Garden of Eden. Amen? What happened in the world? Sin entered into the world. That Satan came and tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, and what did they do? They broke relationship. They broke relationship with God, and then they broke relationship with one another. They turned their backs, and they rebelled against God. They committed the greatest sin by not loving God, by loving other things above the Lord, by putting something else in priority above God in their lives. He violated the relationship with God, which caused all the tension, struggle, and the violation of the relationship with one another. Do you know what the second sin they did was? They lied about each other to God. They sinned against God, and then they sinned against one another. And what is the result of this sin? Death. That death enters into the world, and that every single person ever since has been born, and then they have died. They have been born, and then they have died. And there is war, and injustice, and famine, and plagues, and violence ever since the very beginning. There's a theologian not too long ago. He studied 3,000 years of human history, and he determined there was only 200 years, in the last 3,000 years, that there was not a war going on in the world. Because there is sin. And you know what the cause of war is? People not loving God and loving others. Do you know what the cause of injustice is? People not loving God and loving others. Do you know what the cause of racism and violence is? People not loving God and loving others. Do you know what the cause for all of your problems in your life is that you didn't love God and you didn't love others? Do you know what the cause for the relational strains that you're experiencing is? Because someone's not loving God and someone's not loving others. Do you know what causes divorce? It's not that you fall in love. You stopped walking in love with God and with one another. The biggest sin is not loving God and not loving others and has led to the biggest problems that we have in this world today. No other problem would ever exist if we would learn to love God and love others. Do you want to end the problems in the world? Okay, here's how we would end it. Love God and love others. Do you want to see relationships restored and healed? Here's how you do that. Love God and love others. Do you want to see families come back together? Do you want to see little kids growing up with dads to have somebody come in and to be able to raise them and train them and to be able to speak life and mentor them? You know how we do that? By loving God and loving others. There would not be any pain or problems in the world if we would just learn to love God and love others. 
This is why it's the greatest commandment. And it's also why it's the greatest sin. Do you know what the penalty of sin is? It's death. The penalty for sin is death. Because every sin is ultimately a sin against him. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 22, I believe. He says, every sin that I've committed is ultimately a sin against you. Father, against you only have I sinned. And failure to keep the greatest commandment means you're guilty of breaking the greatest of sins. And the penalty for sin would be death. And the religious leader, he knows this. And he knows that he is guilty of this. And so he begins to raise his hand and say, ah, Jesus, can I justify myself on this one? Can I, can I redefine what neighbor means? Can we do a Hebrew study on what the word all actually means? I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a, I'm a pretty decent human being. I, I treat others well. I've read the Bible. I've prayed my prayers. I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, you're a good person who's committed the greatest of sins. Just like everybody else who commits three felonies a day, you're guilty. You just got caught this time. And the penalty of sin is actually death. Here, here's, here's what we see here. In Romans chapter three, it says this. No one is righteous. How many? No one. You're like, but I'm pretty good. Okay, well, sit down because that's called pride. You're not righteous either. No one is righteous and no one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside from him. We have all gone the way of Adam. We've all turned our back to the Lord. We have run away from him. We've rejected him. We've rebelled him altogether. You and me and everyone in the human race and they have become worthless and no one does good, not even one. Romans 6, Paul continues in verse 23. And he says, for the wages of sin is death. Why? Because failure to keep the greatest commandment is to commit the greatest of sins. And we are all guilty of this. And we stand in the same place as the scribe. And we realize, not perfect, guilty, and there is no argument that I can make. And here's why the scribe responds this way. He says, teacher, that's brilliant. That none of the sacrifices and burnt offerings compare to loving others. Because it doesn't matter what you do with your hands, if you don't love God with your heart, it's pointless. That you can be a good person, you can do good deeds, you can do things, you can follow all the rules and the laws, but God doesn't look on the outside, God looks on the inside. And if on the inside, you're not loving him, then all your good deeds and offerings mean nothing compared to loving God and loving others. This is why Jesus responds by saying this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. How tragic would it be to spend your entire life thinking you're a good person and only make it an inch of heaven? Because close is not the same thing as being in. Close is not the same thing as being welcomed in. You cannot earn heaven. You do not deserve heaven. We deserve death. We deserve wrath. We deserve separation from God. That's what we've earned. And that would be a terrible place to end the sermon. And so what we see next is this. Not only a great commandment, not only a great sin, 
but we see what is called the great exchange. What hope is there for our lives? If we can try and strive and work and toil and justify and find all of these different loopholes and we can present ourselves to be better people than what we truly know that we are and we can find ourselves in a place to where it's completely hopeless. So what hope do we have? It's what's known as the great exchange. Here's what we see. This is amazing. In verse 623 of Romans, I said, for the wages of sin is death. You deserve death. You deserve wrath. You deserve separation from God, judgment. That's what we've earned. That's what all of your good works have received you. And here's what the rest of that verse says. But God... The free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is the whole reason that Jesus came, because he knew you couldn't do it. The most important thing would be impossible for you. And so Jesus comes, and he does it in our place. This is what theologians would call the great exchange, that as Jesus comes, what does he do? He exchanges his life for our life, that he gives us his sinlessness as he takes upon himself our sinlessness, that he gives us his righteousness and he receives upon him our unrighteousness, that he bears the full weight of God's wrath and he gives us the fullness of his grace in our lives to where no longer do we receive death, but now we receive the free gift from Christ Jesus. That is eternal life. He knew you couldn't do it, so he did it for you. He knew you would feel guilty, so he goes to the cross to remove the shame. He knew there would be condemnation in your life because the law levels all of us, but he comes and he fulfills the law in our place. Jesus is the only one who ever loved God perfectly with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength totally devoted to the Lord from the moment he was born to the day that he died and even more so in his resurrection as well. He loved God and he loved others. Do you know who Jesus' neighbor was? Everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but will have everlasting life. For three years of Mark, Jesus has been loving, serving, blessing, helping, healing every single person that he comes across. He was never too busy for anyone. He stopped. He made time for them. He spoke to them. He treated them with dignity and value and respect. Every single person he came across, he loved them. And no greater love is this than to lay down one's life for their friend. And in the cross, we see the great commandment. The vertical crossbar represents the love of God reaching down into humanity. And that God restores the relationship that sin has distorted and destroyed. And then now we can have true, genuine relationship with him through the cross. To love God because he loves us. And then the horizontal represents our relationship with others. In the cross, Jesus restored what the curse stole from us. Love of God and love of others. And so on your own, you can't do it. And so he came and he did it for you. So now, through his grace, you can love God and you can love others because he has first loved us. This is why it's called the great exchange. Say, how do I love God with all of my heart? There's a beautiful verse in the book of Ezekiel that says, and I will give you a new heart. God says, 
your old heart can't do it. So I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to give you a new heart, new natures, new desires are going to be put within you. And I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh instead. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to what? Walk in my statutes. What is that? That is obedience. That is keeping the greatest commandment. I will allow you, enable you through my Holy Spirit to do what you never could do on your own, to walk in my statutes, to walk in my commandments, to be careful to obey my rules. And then here's where the amazing part is. Are you excited? Are you ready? Here's what the amazing part is. Listen, he says that I will be your God and you will be my people. What is God's heart? It's always been about relationship with us, that he wants to be our God. He wants us to love him. He wants to be your God and he wants to make you his child, make you his child and people and person and bring us deeper into a love for him. This is amazing that we couldn't do it on our own. And so he makes the impossible possible for us in our lives to where now we can love God truly, wholly, and wholeheartedly. That we don't love God so that way God will love us. We love God because God already has in Christ Jesus. That we don't obey so that God will love us. We obey because in Christ, God already has. We don't serve God because we're trying to earn something. We're serving God because we have already received something. We don't serve him because we have to. We serve him because we get to. We don't love others because of something that we receive. No, we love others because we have received from God. And when you're so overwhelmed, when you're so consumed, the love of God overflows from your life into every other aspect and relationship that you have. This is incredible good news. It's the great exchange that he gives us, the Holy Spirit, that he gives us forgiveness and redemption and grace and salvation. He gives to us God's church, God's people, God's word. He gives to us everything that we need as we learn to give our lives back to him. So the last thing I want you to write down on your notes as we close is this. The more that you love God, the more you are able to love others because it just becomes natural to you. The more time you spend with God, the more it overflows into every relationship in your life. The more you draw near to him, he draws near to you. The more you seek him, the more you find him. The more you spend time reading your Bible and praying and serving and loving and helping and giving to the Lord, the more of him he gives to you. You can have as much of God as you want. And as you receive the love that God has for you, the natural evidence is that you would begin to share and to serve and to spend that love with other people. The more you love God, the more you are able to love others. The greatest commandment is still the most important thing, but it's not because of our work and trying and striving, but it's because God is working in us. And the more we love him, the more we're gonna be able to love others. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.